Thank you, Jamie. So wonderful to sing to our God and Savior. The author of Hebrews, referring to the sacrificial death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, called him the great shepherd of the sheep. During his earthly ministry, Jesus often looked out at the masses of people with the heart of a shepherd. Matthew recorded for us, as we've studied in chapter 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Peter, when writing to the church to comfort the church that was being persecuted, reminds them of Christ's suffering on their behalf and of their salvation that he describes in these words, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Of course, referring to our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter also charges the elders, famously in 1 Peter 5, that they are to shepherd the flock of God. And then he says, And when the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the unfading crown of glory, 1 Peter 5.4. And of course, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. At the end of the New Testament, the Apostle John, in his vision of heaven of the great multitude from every nation, tribe, and tongue, said, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, he will guide them to springs of living water. God will, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The Lord Jesus is our great shepherd, our good shepherd. And he is called his apostles, as we saw earlier, the apostle Peter, to shepherd the flock of God and to feed his sheep. He gave gifts to his church, Paul wrote in Ephesians 4. And among those gifts were apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers. The ESV in uh, Ephesians chapter chapter 4 verse 11 translates that Greek word literally. It's, It's the word usually, most English translations put pastor there. Pastors, pastor teachers, kind of a, should be a hyphen kind of together because of the the article in front of it, the shepherds and teachers. The Greek word poimen means shepherd. That's all it means. It's used metaphorically as pastor. Pastor comes from the Latin, same word in Latin, pastor, which means shepherd, and is derived from the verb passer, to lead to pasture, set to graze, or cause to eat. The work of the pastor is to shepherd God's flock, to care for his people. This is the work of ministry. And so it has been on my heart since I came back from the Care of Souls conference where we were encouraged by Pastor Jerry Ragg in Florida to shepherd the flock of God. And this has been on my heart since we get back, and so we're going to look at it again today, that Perhaps the greatest man in the New Testament after the Lord Jesus ascends to heaven with a shepherd's heart is the Apostle Paul. And we will get a glimpse into his shepherd's heart 
from 1 Thessalonians 2, if you would like to turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. While you're moving to 1 Thessalonians 2, let me just give you a little bit of background as we get a running start at this. Um, Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians uh, from Corinth on his second missionary journey. The second missionary journey is largely in Acts 16, 17, and 18. Um, He had come from Philippi, where you might remember um, he was uh, evangelizing. He met a woman named Lydia. He was evangelizing, and there was a demon-possessed slave girl following them around, uh, saying these men are proclaiming the way of truth from the Most High God. And he, after days, was annoyed at this and cast the demon out of the woman, and that caused a great disturbance. Uh, He was uh, beaten. He and his companion Silas were beaten, and they were thrown in prison. God delivered them with a great earthquake, and they were uh, delivered. The jailer came to faith in Christ, and so a church was born with a businesswoman, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a jailer. Um, That was the church at Philippi. And so he uh, and Silas were asked, begged to leave because they didn't know they were Roman citizens. And so now the the leaders of the city were were greatly upset because they had beaten and imprisoned a Roman citizen without um, due process. And so they begged them to leave. They went and greeted the church, and then they went on their way. And not too many days after this, they wind up in Thessalonica, which is about 100 miles away. And that's where the context of Paul's... um, intimate knowledge with the Thessalonians begins. It's in chapter 17 of Acts, and I will just sum it up for you here. Um, He went into the synagogue, and as was his uh, common practice, and showed the Jews from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Christ. He did this for three consecutive Sabbath days, uh, Luke records in uh, Acts 17. A new church was birthed, Um, There were many proselytites. There were some Jews that came out of the synagogue, and then there were many proselytites. Uh, Those would have been Greek people, non-Jews, who believed that the Jews had the word of truth. And so they attached themselves to Judaism and were in the process of becoming full followers of Yahweh. They heard of the the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ in what was becoming the New Testament, I should say, And many of them, it says, Luke records, were coming to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry and uh, many prominent women as well, uh, Luke notes. So the church kind of grew quickly in Thessalonica. Um, We know just from some of the other details that Paul stayed there more than three weeks. Um, As the Jews of the synagogue saw these proselytes go to the New Testament church, they became jealous They recruited wicked men and caused a riot. They leveled the accusation that what they were doing was treasonous and that um, they were in jeopardy of uh, uh, Rome coming to um, send troops. And so they uh, persuaded the city authorities, who were called polytarchs, to secure money from one of the Christians named Jason. That security meant that if they preached again, he'd lose the money and those he and the, his pals would be put in prison. So 
after this, the brothers, according to Luke in Acts 17.10, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they got them out of town rather quickly. Um, from Berea, Paul travels to Athens and eventually to Corinth. And that puts us on our date there at A.D. 51, when Paul is spending time in his ministry at Corinth. And so he writes this letter to the Thessalonians from Corinth on the second missionary journey. And in chapter 2, really as a defense, Paul writes of his, the integrity of his ministry. After he had left, there had been accusations against Paul and Silas and Timothy that they had just been in it for the money. Um, people had tried to discourage the new young church. They slandered Paul and his companions. Um, they said that they didn't really care about them. If they cared about them, they wouldn't have left. They would have stayed and faced the charges. Um, and so they questioned their devotion and their love for the church. And so Paul writes to address these concerns. In chapter 2, he is defending the integrity of his ministry and in the process reveals his heart to them and to us that he had a tender shepherd's heart for these people. We will pick it up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and this morning we'll just take a look at verses 7 to 12. Why don't you look there while I read it? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was your conduct, was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory." We'll see here in our text just two main points, really. Paul's shepherd heart is like a loving parent. In verses 7 to 9, we'll see that heart uh, that is like a caring mother. In verses 10 to 12, we'll see that shepherd's heart is like a caring father. And so first, the shepherd is to tend the flock of God like a caring mother for her children. And this is characterized first by gentleness. Verse 7, he says, but we were gentle among you. One of, the, one of the accusations that Paul's detractors are making to the new church is that Paul was demanding. Um, some were accusing Paul and his companions, companions, Silas and Timothy, of needing to be treated with special honor. Kind of like the Pharisees love the, the best seats in the synagogue and to be honored at, at feasts. This accusation was being leveled at Paul. He said, no, you, you remember that we were gentle. The word in Greek means kind. They were kind. He says, in effect, we never came requiring honor or special treatment. Even though, as apostles, he could have. 
required that. Rather, instead of demanding, Paul's ministry among the Thessalonians was marked by gentleness. But we were gentle among you. The word carries the idea of being mild, being kind in their ministry, not overbearing or harsh in exercising spiritual influence and authority. The people had become dear to the hearts of Paul and his companions, and so their ministry to them was marked by tenderness, devotion, and protective care. And note there, he says, but we were gentle among you. That idea of being among you is the picture of the shepherd in with the sheep. It's not the lecturer in the big auditorium with all of the pupils taking notes below, kind of a separate you know, hierarchy where the, the leader separates himself from the people. No, they ministered among the people. They mixed with the people. They were sitting down and spending time with the sheep just like a faithful shepherd. And they were surrounding their shepherd, eager to hear what he had to say. And so, Paul describes his gentleness here in verse 7. And he gives a picture. What is that picture? Look there, verse 7 with me. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother. That was the type of gentleness that they exercised. It was an intimate gentleness. It was a bonding gentleness. There was love and protective care going out, just like a mother with a nursing child. And this is a beautiful picture. In verse, in verse 7, when he says, taking care of her own children. That word for care in the Greek means warmth. It's the word uh, thalpo. It means to impart warmth, to cherish, to comfort, to tenderly care for. It's used in another context of a bird covering her young with her feathers to warm and protect him. Just a beautiful picture. Pictures the mother's protective care of her nursing baby, taking care that nothing comes to harm it. The picture Paul paints is of an unselfish mother. That his conduct among the Thessalonians was un, totally unselfish. He wasn't, he wasn't there to take, he was there to give. And we'll see, this, we'll see this expanded in just a few moments. A nursing mother gently cares for her child with no thought of receiving any financial compensation with no thought of receiving any special privilege or honor in return, right? You moms who have nursed these children or are currently nursing them, you know there's no special honor. You're just happy to be able to get everything together and get out the door, amen? And no bodily pleasures. This is, this is what all false teachers are after. All false teachers are after the money, the compensation. They're after the power or the privilege or the esteem. They want to be honored like a Pharisee or they're after the women or in some cases even more perverse desires. This is what characterizes false teachers. Paul says, no, we, we were the genuine article and we proved it. We proved it 
by our love for you and by the demonstrable love that we had as we cared for you gently and caringly. A nursing mother's focus is on the well-being of her child. Her concern is on the benefits that she is able to bestow to the baby, not what the baby is going to give her in return, obviously. She has no thought of selfish gain, only the giving of gentle, tender care. This is how Paul, Silas, and Timothy cared for their beloved converts in Thessalonica. They made no demands on their spiritual children. They were precious in their sight. So like a mother characterized by gentleness, in verse 8, they also showed fond affection. So being affectionately desirous of you. The word so in Greek there, verse 8, means in this manner. This is how we cared for you. We were, we were being affectionately desirous. The Greek word here is only used once in the Bible, affectionately desirous. It's a verb. It means as experiencing a strong feeling intensified by an inner attachment. It means to long for, to have strong affections, or to love very much. That's how the NIV translated it. I like that one. Because we loved you very much. The NAS says, having so fond an affection for you. It denotes the warm affection and tender yearning that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had for the Thessalonian believers. This Greek word is, I'll say this without crying, is found in some inscription, outside of Scripture. This is the only place in Scripture it's found. It is found outside of Scripture. And it's carved on, in some places, on the caskets or the, or the tombs of infants. In inscriptions that parents had carved into their child's burial crypt. Um, denoting their deep, absorbing affection for their lost child. This is the heart of the shepherd. Paul possessed an authentic, fond affection for the people. Paul didn't know the saying, you know, the ministry's great except for the people. He didn't know that saying. And anyone who says it really doesn't understand what it means to be a pastor. All genuine spiritual leaders have been given a heart by God that shares this deep affection for the people that they shepherd. And what does a parent desire for, his, for her child or his child? What does a parent desire? Health, right? What are you praying? When that, when that young mother goes to, to birth that baby, you are praying that that child is what? Healthy. And that the mother is safe. And then what does the parent desire for that child? That it grows healthy, right? Healthy growth to maturity. This is every mother's desire. A well-nourished and cared-for baby that will grow to maturity. This is the desire, the heart of the pastor. I want to say that I have received, and especially this last year, so many of you have been so thoughtful to either thank me personally, send me a text message, make me a card, make me a game, uh, giving me gifts. I've opened up gifts. I opened up a monetary gift in my office at Christmas time. Um, many of you have opened your home to Leah and I. We are well loved. We are well loved by you. 
And it is a joy to my heart to um, do what I do. And you've greatly encouraged my heart. I have received your affection in warm greetings endlessly and consistently. And I'm genuinely grateful for the privilege of being your pastor. Well, I share that for a purpose. To thank you, number one. But also to highlight something so very important in our text. Critical. Reciprocation is never the faithful pastor's goal. He should never be angling for a compliment. Never seeking validation from the sheep. He's not, he should never be looking to be admired by the people. The pastor's one job is to shepherd the sheep where? To Christ. To point them to him, not to himself. Like the nursing mother who has fond affection for the child, so the godly faithful pastor desires to see his people grow to maturity. And friends, that will not come unless you are following the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else gives the mother more joy than a healthy baby that is growing to maturity. Amen? This should be the pastor's joy. What excites me? What brings me joy? When people in the congregation are exercising biblical discernment. When you can read a book, hear a sermon, listen to a podcast, talk to someone about spiritual truth, and evaluate its merits based on sound theological principles. It's just happened this week, by the way. A podcast and a book came my way from some of you. My heart soars because you're evaluating it. You're opening the Word of God and saying, here's where I agree and here's where I don't agree. That is spiritual maturity in action. But not just biblical content, but demonstrable grace and graciousness. When that is evident in the church, then my heart soars as well because I know that you are growing in your faith. When we as a congregation are known by the truth and also known by grace and graciousness. When Christ's likeness begins to dominate the church's culture. I'll tell you a funny story. 2009, I'm up here, preach my guts out, right? Burden of my heart. Word of God, gave it my best shot. Sermon uh, service is over. Guy comes running up to me. I'm thinking, oh, I had some impact. He's Pastor Jim. Can't wait to show you the picture of the moose I saw on the way to church this morning. Ah, oh, yeah, there was work to do. And I set that up because I like to hunt, but nevertheless. When Christ's likeness begins to dominate the church culture, the topics change. People start to talk about the Lord, talk about what He's doing in their lives, how they're learning and growing to get to know Him. People start to think biblically about their challenging situations. And those challenging situations come, don't they? Spiritual maturity should be the basis of the pastor's joy in Christ 
as it relates to the congregation. When he sees the people for whom he has fond affection growing up into demonstrable maturity. This is a pastor's heart, sorry. (laughs) Gentleness and affection And a nursing mother is also characterized by sacrificial love. Verse 9. Sorry, the latter part of verse 8 and verse 9. Paul says, We were ready to share with you not only uh, the gospel of God, but also our own selves. They came with their most precious possessions, and they freely shared that with the people. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, Silas, and Timothy expressed their genuine love for the church by their willingness to share this treasure with them. But also, not only that, but their own selves. They knew that in order to cultivate healthy sheep, in order to be a shepherd that cares well for the sheep, they needed to bring the gospel and the truth of God. They needed to bring the truth. They couldn't compromise on the truth. And they had to do that in such a way that they gave their own selves to the congregation. Not only the message, but their own, literally their own souls, the text says. Their inner being, along with their preaching, when a generous outpouring of the innermost self on behalf of the Thessalonians. There was nothing superficial about their service to the church. They weren't interested in just making a good show on Sunday morning. They were fully vested all in to sacrifice like a loving mother for her child, who at great cost to herself unselfishly and generously sets aside her life for the benefit of the beloved child, right? You know this. If you've raised a child, everything revolves around that baby, right? Well, let's go do this. Well, you know, it's nap time coming up here, you know. You got to, you've got to have a, you know, you know, I thought it took a lot camping when we go out with the kids when they were little. I mean, you had extra change of clothes, you had all kinds of food, um, diaper bag, you had all kinds of stuff. Life now is given to the child. This is the call of the pastor. You know, the pastor says, well, hey, you know, I just... I have to have, you know, you have to have some, some time to be quiet and reflect, most definitely. You have to have time to rest, most definitely. But you, you give your life for the sheep. I mean, the shepherd's, you know, in his house, and if there's a problem with the sheep, he doesn't say, well, I'm sleeping. You know, I'll be up in the morning. I'll take care of the whatever's in the sheep pen when I get up. No, you get up now. You get up now and go because you care for the sheep. That's life. You give yourself You give yourself to the sheep. And that's what Paul, Timothy, and Silas did. And they set the standard for sacrificial love. Their energy to continue to impart the truth and care for them from a godly love. He says in verse 8, you became dear to us. That word in Greek is agapao, from agape. You became dear to us. In other words, we loved you. The object of our love. And he says something remarkable here. Oh, we'll get to that in a second. Um, he notes in verse 9, our labor and toil. Every mother knows that there is nothing that they would not be willing to do for, their ba- for her baby. Paul and his companions worked hard for a purpose. They worked night and day, verse 9, that we might not be a burden to any of you. 
Paul was church planting in Acts 17 when he came to Thessalonica. There was no Christian church. It's a pagan town. There's a Jewish synagogue, so he goes in there. He goes in there and explains from their scriptures, from the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Messiah. He was eventually, of course, driven out. He left the synagogue, started, founded a church, and was eventually driven out of Thessalonica by the Jews who stirred up a riot because of the very fruitful work of the gospel that was going on. But while he's there, he labors day and night, which he was there longer than three weeks. He labors day and night to not be a burden to the Thessalonians. So in other words, as soon as he leaves, people are accusing him, the detractors are accusing him of being in it for the money. He goes, well, no, you remember, brothers, verse 9, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. There was no question of their motivation as far as finances were concerned. In fact, excuse me, in fact, Two times from Philippi, the church there, sent financial support to Paul. So 100 miles away, somebody had to walk there, walk back. So there was, they were there for an extended time, uh, and they never took an offering, never took a collection. They didn't ask the Thessalonians for money because they were church planting. And until the church grows, until the church sees, oh, it's part of worship to give, you, you, don't, you don't ask them for money. That's why we support missions. So people don't show up and then start asking people for money, and then they wonder, well, you're just here for the money. No, he was there for for the gospel. He was there to proclaim the way of life in Christ. In this way, Paul would put no doubt on the sincerity of their ministry and their message. False teachers are in it for the money. Paul would be the exact opposite. And so Paul has here a pastor's heart that was like that of a nursing mother for her child in gentleness, intimate affection, and sacrificial love. He worked hard for the church he loved while he proclaimed to them the gospel of Christ. So the shepherd is to tend the flock of God like a caring mother for her children. Number two, the shepherd is to care for God's flock like a loving father for his children. Look there with me in verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. The Father is, first of all, a model. Good leadership requires the leader to set the example for everyone else to follow. In the family, that's the Father. He is to lead by example, setting the standard for integrity in his family. In the spiritual family, it is the pastor or the elders. They are responsible to set the example for the church. Now, I want to show you something really remarkable. Look at verse 10. He says, you are witnesses. Now, he makes this appeal throughout this epistle. So, he's remember the context is he's in Corinth. He is, he's heard a good report from Timothy, but evidently there was also some... Uh, reports that people had been accusing Paul, his detractors had been accusing him of certain things that weren't true. And so throughout this chapter, I should say, not the epistle, but throughout this chapter, he says in in chapter 2, verse 1, for you yourselves know, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, as you know, chapter 2, verse 5, as you know, chapter 2, verse 9, for you remember, 
his appeal is about his time there with them. And he tells them, you remember, you remember this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it, but you remember it because you were there when we did it. If the integrity, here's the point, if the integrity of the pastor is ever questioned, all he should ever have to say is, ask my people. Ask them. Ask them if that's true or not. shouldn't have to really ever defend yourself. If you're living with the heart of a shepherd and you're doing the things that Christ has called us to, the people will know. They will know. Just as in a family, you cannot hide your flaws, right? Your kids know. You men, your wives know, don't they? Well, so in a church. You stay in a church long enough, the family of God knows your weaknesses. Don't, don't start listing them. It's okay. Just keep that to yourself for right now. They're definitely there. But any accusation of impropriety, any accusation of a lack of integrity, you should be able to just say, ask my people. Ask the church. Paul doesn't need to launch a long, detailed defense. He can summarize what they already know is true. You are witnesses. And he says, and God also. He keeps a clean conscience, a clean heart before the Lord in all that he does. He said, our conduct was holy and righteous. They conducted themselves in a manner that was consistent with their message. They lived careful lives that avoided sin and lived for righteousness. They, they were blameless. This refers to their reputation. They lived in such a manner as to not to give opportunity for their opponents to find valid reasons for criticism. You do live in a fishbowl when you're a pastor, and your kids live in that fishbowl with you, and so does your wife. Um, so you need to make sure that you've already established that in your heart, that you're going to live a life that's exemplary as a model Paul said in verse 6 of chapter 1, if you look over there, and you became imitators of us. The man who takes the mantle of ministry, takes up the mantle of ministry, needs to really keep that in mind. That you are setting an example and you are to model to the sheep how a Christian lives so that you can say with Paul, you can imitate my life. This is who Paul was. He was a model to the sheep, like a father who is a model to his children. Secondly, like a father, the shepherd is a teacher and an encourager. We, uh, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were like a father who teaches and encourages his children like a father with his children. Paul's heart for the flock of God was akin to the natural parental instincts of a loving father. More than a model, he was an instructor and a teacher. Paul uses three verbs here to describe a father's role of what Paul did for the church. Number one, he exhorted. That means it's the same uh, root word for the, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit. It means to come alongside. A father must come alongside his children to help direct their lives. The idea is a father giving his children wise counsel on how to conduct themselves with integrity and character. This is exhorted. And then encouraged. It means to provide comfort 
and consolation. So in those times of discouragement, in those times that are challenging, you encourage. A pastor needs to provide comfort like a spiritual father. And then thirdly, he says, we charge you, charged you. The, this is the same Greek word where we get the word martyr because so many faithful witnesses died for testifying of Christ in the gospel. While he was with them, Paul implored the Thessalonians to live their lives in such a way as to always honor Christ, to testify to Christ, to witness to Christ. So he says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. The, te- the father is to be a teacher and an encourager. This is the role of the pastor. And Lastly, the pastor who is like a father giving per- parental care is always on mission. Verse 12b, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Just as a loving father has the goal of maturity for his children, so the pastor has the goal of spiritual maturity for the flock of God. It is his goal that God would be glorified. The goal of all ministry endeavors is the glory of God. Now, here's here's what I want you to hang on to. You can go to any number of churches and get any number of statements on what the goal is. What's, what's the mission? What's the goal? We want to keep that thoroughly in line with what Christ reveals to us who said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, the mission of the church. How, how is that done in the context of the church? It is done by the building up of the saints for the work of ministry. That is part and parcel with discipleship. And that all to be done to the glory of God. So we pray that God would be glorified as people come to faith in Christ and are saved and as people grow in their faith and are sanctified. This is the goal of all ministry endeavors. The faithful shepherd, like a faithful father, is always on mission. When are you not teaching your children when they're in the house, right? You know, you think, oh, when they get to be a certain age, they're, they're going to have it down. Yeah, <laughs> sort of, mostly. <laughs> when are you not teaching them? You're always teaching them. This is part and parcel with the sheep. This is what Jesus on, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee called Peter to that I read you when we started this morning. Feed my sheep. Tend to my lambs. Feed them. They were planting a church amidst paganism. Paul and his companions gave themselves entirely to the church. To walk in a manner worthy of God required the three men to train these converts thoroughly in what that meant and what it looked like in everyday decisions and living. So it was eminently practical. Being on mission meant that they were helping them work out all of these ways that they were to live in a society where it was just normal to participate in sexual immorality. That's what that was where they lived. They didn't live where there were churches on every corner. They lived where there were pagan temples on every corner, where that was a part of it. So they were given entirely to the mission of equipping the saints for a sanctified life. 
the goal that they would live lives to the glory of God. We talked about this last week, Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is the pastor's goal. Always on mission. How can I minister to this hurting person in such a way that they will trust in Christ like Job trusted in Christ when he was hurting? How can I help that person in that manner? So whether it's compassion or whether it's just answering a question, hey, what, what does this mean here? You're helping that person grow in their, their love and their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like a father is always on mission with his children, so is a pastor always on mission with the sheep. We'll finish up here. Verse 12 who, speaking of God, does live in a manner worthy, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Having come to faith in Christ through the message of Thessalonians, we're now kingdom citizens. Paul wanted to encourage them that they were citizens of the redeemed kingdom over which God now rules. All believers look forward to sharing in the full glory of the heavenly kingdom when God raises them to be like Christ with him for all eternity. So the picture that Paul gives here requires balance. You're going to be a nur- like a nursing mother. Leaders in God's church must be gentle, compassionate, tender-hearted, caring for people. But they, almost, they must also be like a father. They must lead by example. They must teach. They must give instruction. They must admonish. Admonish, that word nutheto in the Greek means to give instruction with correction. You know, jump up if you love being corrected, right? So there has to be balance. There has to be a balance there, and it's, it's sometimes not an easy balance to find. They must provide an example for others to follow in this balance of loving people, of being tender-hearted, being compassionate, but also giving, giving instruction and, and not, 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 not confronting sin when it rears its ugly head. Pastors must display courage, coming alongside others to exhort them and call, their, call the spiritual children of Christ to obedience to the Word. They must be strong, and they must be tender. Lord, equip us for this task. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is our great and good shepherd. Lord, you are the ultimate example as you laid down your life for the sheep. You gave it all for us. And so, Lord, may we follow your model. And we thank you for the apostles, especially today for the Apostle Paul, that he lived among the people, not standing over them, but he lived among them as a nursing mother and as a kind and gentle yet forthright Father. Father, help us to follow these examples in our own lives that you might be glorified and we would be changed more into your image, Lord Jesus. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.